0: Thank you so much. Thank you, Christ the King, Presbyterian Church, for the invitation to return. It's been a while. I can't remember when I was last here, but I see a lot of new faces that I've not met before, and that's encouragement. Um, But thank you so much. And I also want to thank you, before I read Scripture this morning, for your support of what I'm doing now. Uh, If you've been able to read my monthly newsletters, you know that I... Do a ministry now to pastors and missionaries who are hurting, who are not doing well, who have fallen into some kind of crisis or who are simply discouraged or burned out or something like that. And there are so many pastors and ministry leaders who fit that description. I'm able to go out to meet them, to spend time with them each month. Like this coming week, I'm going to be spending time with several people who uh, are in a really difficult season of ministry. You are making it possible for me to do that. So thank you for your financial gifts. Thanks for praying for me. And I'll continue to keep you informed about ways that you can be a part of Standing Stone Ministry. So thank you very, very much. Let's look at God's Word, and I'm going to be reading today Psalm 73. Psalm 73, easy to find, right about in the middle of your Bible. Listen carefully to God's infallible Word. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they're not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the infallible word that you've given to us. Thank you for showing us Jesus Christ more fully through your word than through anything that we have around us. And we pray, Holy Spirit of God, that you will now come And speak to us for your servants who are listening. Lord, we would see Jesus this morning. And we pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. You know, I love the honesty of the Bible. And here in Psalm 73, we have an example of the honesty of the Bible. The Bible contains all kinds of stories of real people who had real problems. For example, if you struggle with depression, so did Jeremiah, the prophet. If you sometimes feel inadequate, so did young Timothy. If you struggle with lust, so did Samson. If you struggle with loneliness, so did David. If your struggle is with pride, Hezekiah's was too. If you struggle with fear, so did Jonah, the prophet. And if you struggle with doubt, so did Job. And we could go on and on with the kinds of struggles that people in the Bible had, just like you and I do. But if you've ever struggled with envy, and who hasn't, so did Asaph, the author of Psalm 73 that we just read. Did you notice his name in the superscription above Psalm 73, a psalm of envy? Asaph. And so your question is, who in the world was this man Asaph in the Bible? Well, he was a priest back in the days of King David. Not only that, he was Israel's music director. He wrote a lot of music and directed choirs in the Old Testament period. We would today call Asaph a singer-songwriter because that's what he did with much of his time. And he wrote a dozen of the Psalms that we have in our Bibles, of which Psalm 73 is an example. But the other thing I want you to know about Asaph is that he tells us here that he struggled with envy. So what is envy? Well, envy is what you feel when you resent the advantages and the privileges or the possessions of another person. To envy somebody means that you're dissatisfied with who you are, what you have, where God has placed you, and you resent another person or a whole group of people for the gifts and the privileges and the possessions that they have. I remember when I was a kid growing up, I was very envious of my brother. I have an older brother, and he was very athletic. He was strong, he was big, he was muscular. I, on the other hand, well, you're looking at him right now. I was rather thin and not muscular. I tended to be more on the artistic side. I liked to play piano and guitar and sing and that kind of thing. And and yet I was envious of my brother and what he had. See, I I discounted or I underestimated the value of the things that God had given me And I blew up the advantages that I felt that my brother had. And I spent many of my years growing up envious of my big brother. Just an example. But here in Psalm 73, Asaph tells us about his envy and what it was that turned him around. And so here's the plan for our study of Psalm 73. It seems to divide up into four easily identifiable parts. And they all start with the letter C. So we're going to look together at first Asaph's creed, and then his crisis, and then his course correction, and finally his renewed confidence. Did you get that? His creed, his crisis, his course correction, and his renewed confidence. So let's dive in and talk first about Asaph's creed. Asaph's creed is in verse 1 of Psalm 73 where he says, truly God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. You know what a creed is, right? Earlier we recited part of the Heidelberg Catechism. That is a creed. A creed is a statement of faith. It's a summary of what one believes. And here in verse 1, Asaph tells us what his creed is. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So we can say together that Asaph knew his theology. Asaph was reformed. He was orthodox. He knows what he believes. And he's very distinct in what he tells us his beliefs are. After all, Asaph was a leader of God's people. Like I told you, he's a worship leader. A leader should know what he or she believes, correct? And so does Asaph. Asaph was a student of the word of God. That's why the first word out of his mouth is the word truly or surely or certainly. Indeed, God, he says, is good to Israel. But it's one thing to know what one believes and quite another to actually live out of what one believes. You can have a lot of good theology up here but not really let it soak into your heart down here and then usher out into the way you live. You can have it all from the neck up and nothing else in your life, right? So that's Asaph's creed. No sooner are the words of his creed in verse 1 out of his, out of his mouth than he has a crisis of faith. And he writes about this crisis, that's our second part of the psalm, in verses 2 through 14. Look at verse 2. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. He says, I nearly tripped and fell. I stumbled over my feet, I lost my balance. And we want to ask Asaph, Asaph, why, what's going on here? What happened? And he tells us in verse 3. He says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You can identify with Asaph here, correct? Maybe you come out your front door one day and you see your next door neighbor gathered around with all the friends in the neighborhood around his brand new Tesla. And you... (laughs) (laughs) And you say, oh, wow, look at that. How great, neighbor. But what you're thinking to yourself is, why do you have that car? How did you get that car? I should have a new Tesla. Or maybe you're sweating it out on the Stairmaster at the gym one morning, and this thin little 20-something goes walking by. And you think, how come... I can't look like that. Why can't I have that body? Or maybe you hear about some friends of yours who just got back from their third vacation this year. Or maybe somebody tells you about a great spiritual experience they had. See, envy says, I should have that car. I should have that body. I want that vacation I deserve to have that experience, that promotion, that raise, that husband, that wife, those kids. Why do they have such good children and I don't? I should have good kids. My kid ought to be playing first base. Why does she have such an understanding mom that lets her do whatever she wants? I should have a mom like that. See, we rarely say those words, but those are words we often think to ourselves, And those are the voice of envy. I know what I'm talking about. Because I've nearly tripped and stumbled and fell too over the stone of envy. As a pastor, I have envied other ministry leaders. I have envied other people who wrote a new book, who have a bigger church, who have numbers they can talk about that I can't whose church budget was bigger than mine. See, it happens in the church world too, just like it does in your neighborhood and at your workplace and in your school and in your family. Temptations to be envious are everywhere we look. Envy sells products. Envy makes commercials. Envy causes crime and creates enemies. Did you know that Mark 15 verse 10 says that it was out of envy that the chief priests handed Jesus over to Pontius Pilate to be crucified. Euripides called envy the greatest of all diseases among men. In Galatians 5, Paul the apostle includes envy in his list of the acts of the flesh. And I want you to remember Proverbs 14 verse 30. You might want to jot that down and memorize this verse because it says that a heart at peace gives life to the body but envy rots the bones proverbs 14:30 envy rots the bones what rots our bones cancer right envy is like a cancer that rock, rots the bones of our souls and envy just about killed Asaph's faith Verse 2 says that he nearly slipped off the cliff into the abyss of doubt and unbelief. Asaph, you see, has the right creed. He's got the right theology. He believes that God is good to Israel. But he looks around and something doesn't add up. The righteous seem to be suffering while wicked and arrogant people are prospering and doing well. The Hebrew word for prosperity in verse 3, by the way, is the word shalom. Now, you probably don't know a lot of Hebrew, but I bet you know that word, shalom. It means peace or blessedness or well-being, wholeness. And to Asaph, that doesn't make any sense, that wicked people should be experiencing shalom, blessedness from God. Something's wrong with this picture, God, Asaph is saying. Unbelievers, for the first, in the first place, seem very happy. They have no pangs, he says in verse 4. That means no struggles. Now that's not true, right? Everybody's got struggles, but it looks like they're just fine. They have no pangs. They are free from the burdens common to men, says one rendering of verse 5. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. So they seem very happy. Secondly, they seem healthy. Their bodies are fat and sleek, he says in verse 4. They are not in trouble as others are. Thirdly, they seem very popular. Happy, healthy, popular. Verse 10, people turn back to them and they find no fault in them. Uh, fourthly, they seem invincible and in control. They set their mouths, it says in verse 9, against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. It's like they're in t- complete control. You know, they've got everything under control. And finally, they seem very successful. It says in verse 12, they're always at ease. They increase in riches. That's Asaph's evidence that's working against his creed. Arrogant, wicked people are happy, healthy, popular, in control, and successful. And he says, This does not add up. It's not supposed to be this way, says Asaph. I'd like you to think of somebody that you're envious of right now. Maybe it's a person, maybe it's a group of people. Someone who appears to be happy, healthy, popular, in control, successful. Maybe it's a neighbor. Perhaps someone at school, somebody at work, someone in your own family, a group of people like all the married people in the world or all of the single people in the world or younger people, people of whom you're envious. It means that you're dissatisfied with who you are, whom God has made you, where he has placed you, what he has given you, dissatisfied with that, and you resent these other people or this group of people for who they are and what they've been given by God. Listen, I want you to know, if you're honest with yourself and admit to being envious of someone like I've just described, that envy is killing your joy. It is. It's rotting your bones, whether you feel it or not. Many people have cancer going on in their bodies. They have no idea. Envy does the same thing. It's robbing your heart of peace. It's killing your ability to love that person or that group of people. That's serious, friends. Asaph's having that same crisis that you and I do sometimes. These people that Asaph's talking about, they couldn't care less about God. You know, it says in verse 6, pride is their necklace. They're wearing it like a trophy, a badge of honor that they don't really need God in their lives. Their hearts overflow with follies, it says in verse 7. They don't love God. They don't even give him the time of day. Verse 11 says that they carry on with their lives and they say, how can God know? You know, is there knowledge of them in the Most High? And Asaph is an honest man and he says, it's not fair, God. This is not fair. You're supposed to be good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Well, God, I'm Israel. I've done all the right things, he says. I've believed all the right things. I've tried to honor you and obey your law. And what have I gained for it? Nothing. He says in verse 13, some words that are so honest. All in vain, I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Now, before you and I pile on Asaph and accuse him of feeling sorry for himself, we need to realize that he's asking a very reasonable question. And the question is, is God just? Is God fair? Is he true to his promises? And can I trust him? Maybe you've been there. I wouldn't doubt it. Many of you have been there. Something has gone wrong in your life. You've 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 taken a U-turn, something has just not worked out like you anticipated, you'd prayed, you'd hoped in God, you'd trusted him. And look what happened. Is God just? It's a fair question. Job asked that question. So did the author of Ecclesiastes. So did the prophet Habakkuk. And so have you and I and many good and godly people down through the ages. So, question before us this morning is, how can I, how can you and we follow God and trust God when life seems unfair, when prayers go unanswered, when your loved one does not get better, when it feels like God is a million miles away? Well, the answer to those questions is in verses 16 and 17, where we read about Asaph's course correction. We've seen his creed in verse 1, his crisis of faith, and now in verse 16, we read about his course correction. Look at those two verses, 16 and 17. He says, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. In other words, it seemed impossible to figure out. It was oppressive to me until, verse 17, I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Ah, there's the breakthrough. There's the turning point. Asaph gets a new perspective of life in a fallen world. Or perhaps we should say that he recovers the perspective that he's always had but temporarily lost. Just as you and I often lose our hold on truth that we know to be true. It's like he puts on glasses, and he sees his present distress in the light of eternity. You can see that I wear glasses. I need these glasses. If I were to take these off, I can't see. It's all, it's all a, a fog. You would not have a very good sermon without these glasses. I put them on. Ah, oh, it makes sense. I now see things rightly, and that's what Asaph does. He puts on his eternal perspective glasses and he sees things as they should be. How did it happen though? How did he get this eternal perspective? It says in verse 17 that he went into the sanctuary of God. That is to say, he went to the temple, he went to church just like you came to church this morning at Christ the King. He met with God's people and he did what God's people do when they meet together. They sing hymns, they listen to God's word, they pray, and they encourage one another. It was in the temple, you see, gathered with the family of God that Asaph regained his balance. He put on the glasses and saw things as they really are, and his envy... Turn to faith. You know, friends, the older I get, and I'm getting there, turn 70 next year. Wow, that's hard to believe. Uh, The older I get, the more I value what we're doing in this room right now. You know, early in my Christian experience, and maybe this was true in your life as well, it seemed like the main thing was to have a personal relationship one-on-one with Jesus I do not mean to discount the importance of that. I'm not discounting the value of personal devotions and small groups and Bible studies and so on and so forth that happen throughout the week, Monday through Saturday. But look, something special happens in church on Sunday mornings that only happens in church on Sunday mornings. And that's one of the bad things about COVID. Because people got used to not going to church. And I talk to a lot of people who are still not going to church three years later. I'll be honest. There have been times in my life when I've dragged myself to church on Sunday morning. And I was the pastor. (laughs) (laughs) But as I sang the songs, as I prayed the prayers, as I talked with friends and heard God's word and took the Lord's Supper, as you... Are going to next week, I believe, something happened. I got a course correction. I got that eternal perspective that Asaph got. I recovered my senses, and I saw things rightly. I went into the sanctuary of God, said Asaph. Then I understood. Then I got it, the final destiny of the wicked. So, that's his creed, his crisis, his course correction, and finally, his renewed confidence in verses 18 through 28. Basically, in these closing verses, Asaph preaches the gospel to himself. He brings to mind three truths that he knows to be true, three truths that lead him out of envy and into confidence and contentment in God. And you might want to write these down. Now look, you got an extra hour of sleep last night, so you should be super alert. (laughs) Three truths in the rest of this psalm that will help you and me overcome envy and find confidence in where God has placed us and who we are in Christ. Truth number one, although unbelievers may prosper in this life, they will be punished in the life to come. Although unbelievers, wicked, arrogant people may prosper in this life, they will be punished in the life to come. Look at verse 18. He says, Truly you, Lord, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. See, friends, one day it will not matter that a person was rich Or beautiful, or fit, or famous, or that they lived in a fancy home and drove a Tesla, or sailed in yachts, or had all that this world has to offer. Not that there's anything wrong with those things. But sadly, for those who put their trust and their hope in such things as money, and wealth, and fame, and great jobs, and beauty, and so on, on the last day they will discover that they neglected the one thing. That is most urgent and important. And that is faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. And this morning I would simply speak to anyone who happens to be here today who has not yet said yes to Jesus Christ. It says in verse 18 that you're living on a slippery place. And I entreat you to go to God today and pray and ask him to reveal himself to you, to forgive your sins. And make you his child. It's the most important thing you could do in life. So that's truth number one. Unbelievers may prosper, but one day they will be punished. Truth number two although believers may suffer in this life, they will be celebrated in the life to come. Unbelievers prosper, they'll be punished. Believers in Jesus. Even though they suffer now, they will be celebrated in the life to come. See verse 23. 23 says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Think of that, believers in Jesus. Afterward, you will receive me into glory. You who suffer with cancer or depression or some other chronic difficulty. Glory, glory is coming. You who have denied yourselves and carried your cross and given your money and served without reward, glory is coming to you. You who have wept over your sin and fought your temptations and sought God in spite of your many failings, glory is coming. You who have felt unwanted now or who have been lonely and rejected and abandoned yet still love the Lord Jesus, He will receive you to glory. And it's not because of what you've done for him. It's because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago and rose again from the dead for you. He took your sins away and gave you his righteousness, making it possible for you to be the, the the child of your father and one day be welcomed into glory. Wonderful truth. Unbelievers may prosper now, they'll be punished later. Believers may suffer now, they'll be celebrated later. And finally, truth number three. In the meantime, on this side of glory, believers in Jesus, you have the most wonderful thing in the world. And that is a saving knowledge of God through Jesus Christ. That's why you never need to envy anybody. They should envy you. Because you've got the treasure that is greater than any other treasure in this world. Verse 26, Asaph says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You might underline that word portion. It's really important. It means share or inheritance or allotment. So Asaph says, God, you're my allotment. You're my share, you're my portion. See, being a Levite, Asaph would have understood well that word, portion. You see, the Levites owned no real estate in the Holy Land. No, all the other tribes, they received territory in the Promised Land of Israel. The tribes of Judah and Simeon and Issachar and Benjamin and Zebulun and Reuben and all of the others, they received allotments of land, but not the Levites. They didn't receive any allotment of territory. The reason being, God was their portion. God was their territory. He was their allotment. And so is God your portion. He's enough. He's the treasure that far exceeds and far outlasts any other. Jonathan Edwards, famous American theologian of the colonial period, once preached a sermon on this very psalm, Psalm 73, in which he said, He that has God has all. He that has God has all. God's your portion when your marriage is an unhappy one. God is your portion when you're single or widowed. He's your portion when you lose your job, don't like your job, don't have a job, can't find a job. God's your portion. He's your allotment. He's enough when your child decides to walk the road of unbelief. Even then, God is enough. God is enough when you're sick or when you're disabled and you won't be getting any better. God's enough. See, Asaph learned something that you and I need to learn. The blessed life, the life of shalom, is not achieved by what you have or what you do or who you know or what you know. It's measured by whom you know, or better yet, by who knows you. Earlier, I asked you to think of someone of whom you are envious Do you want to kill that envy before it rots your bones? Sure you do. Then say with Asaph, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we admit to you sometimes we have the right theology and we do not really live by our theology. We are often envious of people who don't even know you at all and yet seem to be better off than we are. Lord, would you please forgive us for that? We're just like Asaph. We often just about stumble. But Lord, thank you that you are the strength of our hearts and you're our portion forever. Help us to understand that and believe that and to preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. And we ask this in Jesus' name.